Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. In the ever-expanding universe of the 16 songs of 66, it seems to make sense that we should have a 17th song of 66. This is a bit like uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy being a trilogy in five parts, but there is a 17th song that came out in 1966, and it is Everywhere It's Christmas, the Beatles fan club Christmas single. Everywhere It's Christmas. I think that counts 17 songs. I think it does. I mean, we're not counting, you know, the, the, there were other songs that they were working on towards the end of 66, but they didn't come out in 66. This is, does have a true claim to be the 17th song of 66. Absolutely. And uh, if you want to be specific, I think the song is, please don't bring your banjo back. <laughs> we'll come, yes. on to that. we come on to that. We'll come on to that in a second. Um, now, the Beatles Christmas records are a fantastic parallel universe, and I still feel that they are, even though we got the 2017 box set, there's still a bit of a secret history um, in, in terms of the Beatles story. They're, they're just a little bit hard to get your hands on. And the thing I love about this sort of secret history in the, in the Christmas records is, you know, they made seven Christmas records from 63 to 69, this 66 record is right in the middle. So you have three before, three after. This 66 record's right in the middle. And even if you just followed the Christmas records, you can see the Beatles' evolution. Even if you just look at the cover of the Beatles fan club records, you can see the evolution of the Beatles. So they're, they're a fantastic resource, the Christmas records. It shows the Beatles, the characters of the Beatles at each stage in their career in terms of the sort of young, innocent mop tops to the slightly more sophisticated stuff in the mid-60s to the records being recorded separately mm. and sort of pieced together. So even in the way that these things are recorded, the way they are produced, it's a parallel history. And they are underappreciated because although we did get that box set, I've never played those records. What? <laughs> I bought the box. I bought the box. The box is a cool thing to have. I actually mm-hmm. bought two, two. Somehow, by accident, I acquired two copies, two boxes. Yeah. That happens to you a lot, Stephen, where by accident you end up with two copies of things. <laughs> it does indeed. Not to put it you on the indeed. spot. I'd listen to them on YouTube. Mm. I, I do think they're just not accessible. They're not readily accessible. Why aren't these things on streaming? But I like the fact that they, they are kind of not readily accessible. And, you know, I, I never really sat down and listened to them all from start to finish until the box set came out. And I have gotten into a tradition now where I pack the box set away with my Christmas decorations so I'm not looking at it all year. And then when I take my Christmas decorations out of the attic, uh, this is sitting on top of one of the boxes and I'm like, oh, it's time to give these all a spin again. It's a very pleasant uh, box set. But, you know, I think the 1966 
Christmas record is probably the pinnacle, 66 and 67. But yeah. the 66 record is a pinnacle because it sits right in the middle between these kind of early records where they're like, hello, we've had a lovely year. And these kind of records at the end where they're just not talking to each other. Um, yeah. But the thing we should give a bit of credit to is that the Christmas, the Beatles Christmas Flexi Disc, and it would come to just UK fan club members as a flexible mm-hmm. disc in, um, in, in the week before Christmas it would come through their letterbox. It's actually a very far-sighted idea that, you know, in 1963, they were so popular, they'd become so huge, there was no way they could keep up with their correspondence. So to do something special like this for their fans, it's a very clever idea. It was a very clever idea, and we should go back to friend of the show, Tiny Barrow. Tiny Barrow, he's another season eight star. (laughs) He's the breakout star of season eight. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but this is apparently his idea, more or less, isn't it? Supposedly. There are times when he will say, yes, it was his idea. There are other occasions in which he would say, no, no, it wasn't uh, his idea. So just to place Tony Barrow mm-hmm. uh, in context, he, he is a, basically a, a, he has a job as a freelancer writing uh, pop and rock reviews for the Liverpool Echo. He's 17 when he starts doing that. What were you doing at 17? Were you enterprising enough to uh, go and start hawking your wares to the... No. That was Cousin, cousin, cousin Pat did that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he was, he's doing a... He's, he's kind of working in 1954 as a 17-year-old schoolboy writing freelance pop rock reviews. And 1954 is a good year to start doing that kind of thing. Absolutely. But arguably, he couldn't have done it before 1954. But, you know, he's, he's, he's there at the beginning. So he's building up that experience. Uh, he moves to London. He starts to work for Decca, where he's doing sleeve notes, you know, for the back of album covers, etc. But he's still contributing. Disker is the uh, weekly record column to the Liverpool Echo. And in that context, he comes to the attention of Brian Epstein, who assigned the Beatles in 1961. He gets in touch with Barrow for professional advice. And Barrow basically recounts that Epstein asked him to write a column for the band and that he then arranged to get the Beatles an audition with Decca. This leads mm-hmm. to an informal arrangement where Barrow becomes the Beatles' sort of part-time press-slash-publicity consultant. So even after they signed to EMI... He's doing press from his desk at the record company at DECA, from his desk at DECA. And eventually he will then leave DECA and move to NEMS in May 1963. So Tony Barrow opens Epstein's first London office and then begins to promote basically the entire NEMS roster. You know, Scylla Black, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer, the foremost. And he develops an entire strategy. So he, he has them doing telephone interviews with with regional newspapers and then supposedly he comes up with this idea of you know we've got this fan club we got you know at one point there were 80,000 people subscribing to the fan club and it was his idea to do this uh, flexi disc and send it out you know there's a goodwill gesture and it might limit the damage done to the group's reputation by the delays in responding because they're actually responding to individual letters at this point (laughs) I'm thinking of Ringo on The Simpsons. Dear Marge, <laughs> thanks for your picture. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he's quite farsighted. And, it, you know, we take it for granted now that people do press junkets. So they have a day where they sit down and, you know, do a load of interviews or do a load of phone calls. Um, but that wasn't 
the prevailing uh, media culture in the early 60s in, in, in British pop. So, yeah, he would get people to sit on the phone, ring all the local newspapers, give a few words, and kind of get the Beatles out there. And this kind of flexi-disc is a similar idea that you kind of spend money to make money or to, to, get, to get capital with the fans. Because I think Brian thought it was going to be a bit of a, um, a loss, you know, a bit of a loss to actually bother to do this and didn't want to do it. So Tony kind of presses on the Beatles themselves to do it. Yes, that's exactly right. So he will say in 1983, he says, it's the Queen's Christmas message inspired him to do this. He writes a book later and says, no, no, it wasn't my idea at all. But I think the accepted thing is he went to Brian. Brian says, absolutely not. It's going to cost money to to finance these, to basically give them away. Barrow thinks this is a good idea and he persists and he goes essentially behind Brian's back, goes and speaks to the Beatles who think it's a great idea and then they talk to Brian and Brian is sort of bounced into this. So the fan club get their first Beatles Christmas message, 1963. Yeah, so the first three Christmas records are all kind of of a type really, 63, 64, 65. They're called the Beatles Christmas record, another Beatles Christmas record and the Beatles third Christmas record. Very, very uh, original. But even across those first three records, you can see a bit of a loosening of the, the 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 kind of the structure of these things because they're they're inevitably they start to play to type that you know yeah. the, the four of them are, are there and you, you know the, it kind of starts it's it's always something that's done with a little bit of extra studio time we've got an hour to kill let's do the Beatles Christmas record so it kind of starts pretty traditionally in sixty three where they're in the studio and they're just saying hello and thanks and that kind of thing. Yes, so this is basically scripted by Tony Barrow. And, you know, they're doing carols and they're just saying, what a wonderful year, thank you for all the presents, etc., etc. It's all very straightforward. There are so many people in the fan club that they have to do a second pressing of the single uh, that goes out in the new year uh, in February. By 1964, as you say, they're sort of slipping into type here. So again, it's sort of scripted. Paul is trying to follow the rules. Don't know where we'd be without you, etc., etc. John is pretty sarcastic. So they say, where would you be if not in the Beatles? And he says, in the army, probably. (laughs) And they sort of mock the whole thing and they're deliberately misreading the script and their sense of humour comes across. And as you say, there's a sort of loosening uh, of, mm. of, of the, the reins, you know, they're breaking out from the script. Yeah, and, and the, the second Christmas record gets a, a run of 65,000 copies, which comes along with the Beatles newsletter. Um, by the time we get to 65, they're, they're a little bit more aware. They're, they're supposed to be doing versions of songs. Um, but, you know, there's kind of Vietnam references and that kind of thing slipping in. Yes, so there's a little bit of, little bit of politics as they said in the 80s, uh, creeping in. They're doing Yesterday, and it's almost a send-up of Yesterday, because I suppose that there's a slightly mocking aspect to themselves, or specifically the idea of sort of Paul, you know, it's the way they would introduce it, and now for Paul McCartney of Liverpool, Opportunity Knocks. So they're making fun slightly of the fact that Paul has had this almost solo song. But it's this is where it starts to, I think for a modern audience, you could sort of, it's quite meta, is that the word, where they're sort of referencing so, themselves yeah. and making making fun of themselves. That's probably where their their individual characters start to emerge most. And now, there, if you got a fan club record in 1965, you would have been one of the tens of thousands. But there was an even more elite Christmas record in 1965 that had a run of, checks notes, three copies. Three whole copies. And this is Paul McCartney's Christmas album. 
<laughs> what? <laughs> Wonderful Christmas time. <laughs> Wonderful Christmas time, uh, uh, decades early. So yeah, in 1965, he records a Christmas album of sorts as a gift to his three bandmates. So there are only three discs created, and uh, Richie Unterberger describes this, uh, and he said, uh, unforgettable. For years it had been reported that Paul McCartney recorded an album at home around Christmas 1965, specifically for the other Beatles. Supposedly it includes singing, acting, sketches, and only three copies were pressed. And McCartney confirmed this in the Many Years From Now book, and he said it was really a kind of stone thing. And in 1995 with Mark Lewis, and he also confirmed that it existed and went into a little bit of detail. So what we're saying here is that Paul McCartney invented the mixtape, the playlist. He was a man ahead of his time. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost a, like a podcast, you could say, that he, he created. He invented the podcast because that's what it is. He invented everything. It, it seems to be, <laughs> yes, it seems to be a sort of mix of tapes and sketches and skits. And he has the wherewithal to record this at home. And he also has the clout to get it pressed up into uh, into a record. Into acetates. Yeah, and it's called Unforgettable, and it starts with Nat King Cole singing Unforgettable, and then Paul is kind of a, a cheesy US announcer, and, um, you know, he, he you know gets pressed at Dick James's studio. And if only there was some way to hear this in uh, 2023. And weirdly, weirdly, there is. So in 2017, an 18-and-a-half-minute tape appeared on YouTube with Paul doing the impression of a disc jockey and... He plays Unforgettable, Someone Ain't Right by Peter and Gordon, I Get Around by the Beach Boys, Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas, Don't Be Cruel by Elvis, Down Home Girl by the Rolling Stones. So th- th- it is out there and you can hear it. Paul, in describing it to Mark Lewison, said, I had two Brunel tape recorders set up at home on which I made experimental recordings and tape loops like the ones in Tomorrow Never Knows. And once I put together something crazy, something left field, just for the other Beatles, a fun thing which they could play late in the evening. It was just something for the mates, basically. Around this time, there's talk about, you know, a Paul McCartney solo album, and he was going to mm. call it Paul McCartney Goes Too Far, and John was sort of encouraging him to do this. And Paul, he's not prepared to put this out in the in the style of electronic sound or two virgins or whatever, but this, this is a forerunner mm. of the sort of thing that John does or George does. And if you remember all the way back to the Zappel episode that we did, where they talked about these disposable... Almost like magazines. Yes. Zappel would put these out. There would be interviews. There'd be portrait readings. And he describes it to Mark Lewis in those terms. He said it was like a magazine program full of weird interviews, experimental music, tape loops, and some tracks I knew the others hadn't heard. It was just a compilation of odd things. So, you know, credit where credit is due. Paul is prefiguring in late 65 what they will try to do with Apple and specifically what Barry Miles will try to do with the Zappel label in 68. Yeah, when you listen to the YouTube version, it, it does seem more like a mixtape. It doesn't seem quite as experimental as he, perhaps no. he remembers it, but it's still um, it's still quite unique. And you do have to wonder, how does something like that get online? Because there's, there's obviously the original tape that was made of the show, so to speak, the Unforgettable show. There's three acetates made. So where did that tape come from? It can only have come from his archive to go online. And it does bring into the wider question, which is something we ask from time to time, which is, oh my God, what else is in that archive? You know, what uh, what other tapes and demos and, and magical things from the 60s and 70s ex- exist there? But it is incredible that this does exist and it is online if you want to have a listen to it. 
yes, what is that archive? Again, if they need some archivists to come along and listen to everything, totally happy to do that. Uh, also sitting in this archive is apparently another Paul McCartney Christmas record. He's never done making Christmas records. (laughs) Well, this came to light in 2019, that he has a private Christmas record that he has compiled over the years at home that that gets trotted out every Christmas in the McCartney household. Yeah, so he said uh, in 2019, years ago, I thought there's not very good Christmas records. Really? So I actually went into my studio over a couple of years and I made one. The kids like it. It's something they've heard through the years, you know, and now it's the grandkids getting indoctrinated with my carols record. And he was asked, you know, can we expect this to come out? And he said, I will never release this. Despite it being popular, it will never come out. So it'll come out eventually, I'm sure. (laughs) We'll expect it next year, anytime, in in multicoloured vinyl editions. (laughs) You see, there's another iteration of uh, McCartney 3 coming out. Is there? Yeah, different different colour cover or something. It really, three years down the track, we've got another McCartney 3 coming? Apparently. It is a Christmas record, McCartney 3. That's, uh, that's uh, a hill I will die on. <laughs> but this brings us to 1966. And by the time we get to 1966 and the Christmas record, it, it has its own universe. It's not like, here's another message record. It has a title, which is Pantomime, colon, Everywhere It's Christmas. And what's nice to think about it is they have returned to the studio in November 66. They start work on Strawberry Fields. And then, you know, we think of Strawberry Fields as this very serious, very austere, experimental piece of work. And then they take a break from Strawberry Fields to do this, which is very fun, playful, mop-top type behaviour. And perhaps not exactly what we think is happening in the background of Strawberry Fields' creation. No, you think of Strawberry Fields, which is sort of leading into 67 as being sort of acid-fueled and very serious and experimental. There hasn't been a Beatles recording session for five months. You know, we can kind of walk through the, the evolution of Strawberry Fields, and that turns up on Anthology 2, it turns up on the box set, etc. They will go back uh, on the 28th of November and sort of have another attempt at that. But in between, so it's actually sandwiched in between the two recording sessions on the 25th of November, they sit down to record their Christmas record for 66. So one, I would say, very late in the day, in the year, yep. to be doing this on the 25th of November. Secondly, as you say, this is a different type of Christmas record because it's something that they have scripted, or more specifically, Paul has scripted. There's a structure to it. He has an idea, and this idea of sort of pantomime, in inverted mm-hmm. commas, which is quite an English thing, I suppose, you know, maybe American listeners or people outside England or outside the UK, pantomime is just, what, fairy tales on a stage, there's people dressing up, uh, you know. Oh, no, it isn't. (laughs) Oh, yes, it is. Oh, no, it isn't. Yes. (laughs) It's a very English Christmas tradition, and Paul obviously has this in mind, but he's controlling everything from the, the scripting to the recording to the production to the cover. This is very much... Paul's baby. Yeah, it, it is. I, I mean, you're right. They've left it to the 11th hour. Usually they record these things more, you know, they're usually late October that they get recorded. But obviously the Beatles have not been together near a microphone for months. John's been doing 
you know, they, they came off stage at Candlestick Park at the end of August. John went off to do How I Won the War. George went off on his travels. Uh, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And, you know, this is the first time they've had the opportunity to, to record. So, yeah, the 24th of November, 66, is when they're back into the studio after five months. They're doing the this very early version that's on Anthology 2 of Strawberry Fields. And, um, you know, they're due back in to work on Strawberry Fields on the 28th. But it's in between on the 25th that they start to work on this uh, Christmas record. And it's also unique because before it's been kind of Tiny Barrow's job to put it all together. This time, George Martin is the producer and George Martin is involved. And it's not happening at Abbey Road either. So, yes, so they will record this in Dick James' uh, studio in 71 to 75 New Oxford Street, London. So this is just a very small studio that uh, Dick James, their music publisher, uses to record demos and things like that. But before they before they end up there, they go to see Jimi Hendrix at the Bag of Nails. Now, this is amazing that this is uh, the day after they start Strawberry Fields, before they work on their Christmas record, they slip into a little gig by Jimi Hendrix. And this is, you know, this is late 66. So Jimi Hendrix hasn't put out his debut uh, album yet, Are You Experienced? That's to come in 67. This is pretty much Jimi Hendrix's debut to the UK It crowd. And it really is an extraordinary group of people who are in the room at the Bag of Nails Club, which is very small, watching Jimi Hendrix. And if the story is to be believed, it's a seismic kind of punch in the face to everybody in the room. So his reputation precedes him. And again, we talk about, you know, if you could go back and see one concert, perhaps this would be the one. Maybe. Because of Jimi Hendrix, obviously, but because of who was there. So Terry Reid recounts this, and it was... uh, Chas Chandler, the animal's bassist who was managing Hendrix, he arranged it. And Terry Reid says there were guitar players weeping. They had to mop the floor up. He was piling it on solo after solo. I could see everyone's fillings falling out. When he finished, it was silence. Nobody knew what to do. Everybody was dumbstruck, completely in shock. When he says everybody, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, Jeff Beck, Paul McCartney, The Who, Eric Burden, John Mayall, maybe Jimmy Page, although he denies being there. John Mayall says the buzz was out before Jimmy had even been seen. So people were anticipating his performance and he more than lived up to what we were expecting. And as you say, it's a tiny room. I can't imagine there's room for anybody else except those yeah. rock stars and their egos being crushed by Jimmy Hendrix. There was also room for Donovan. Donovan was there as well. That's nice. And uh, he'd, uh, yeah, Jimmy had only been in London a couple of weeks. So the story is that he... Um, a few weeks earlier, he'd, 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 he'd joined Cream on stage to jam and had upset Eric Clapton with how good he was because yes. Cream were in the very early days. And, you know, we don't like Eric Clapton to be upset. Um, but, you know, it, again, the legend is that from this performance in The Bag of Nails on the 25th of November, Clapton grows his perm, realises there's a new kid in town. It, it's all up for grabs. That is such a weird thing for Eric Clapton to do. <laughs> to grow, you, you see yeah. Jimi Hendrix and you think, oh, I'd like an Afro too, and then I can be like Jimi Hendrix. That's a, such a, you know, Clapton was regarded as the the greatest guitar player in London at the time, and it just seems very odd to me that it's like a fanboy thing that that oh, I'm going to go and get my hair cut, you know. But anyway. <laughs> I, I think it, I think in many ways Clapton was a trailblazer in cultural appropriation. Let's put it that, that way. <laughs> very good. Um, so yeah, so after. Uh, seeing Jimi Hendrix kind of set the world on fire. They go into a small studio uh, in New Oxford Street to record a very silly 
um, proto-Monty Python uh, kind of post-goons type of, um, you know, Christmas record. Yes, and John Eden, who is a recording engineer, he says it was an in-house recording facility built within the confines of an office structure and its main use was for songwriter demos. So it is not a sophisticated studio. Uh, It will lead on to DJM Records, which is an independent Mm. record label in the late 60s. Elton John is probably the most famous, but Horse Lips, The Tremolos, Danny Kerwin, Dennis Waterman. He writes the theme songs. He plays the theme songs. He sings the theme songs. (laughs) People outside the UK won't know what that means. And best to last, John Inman released records on the DJM label. And and also Jasper Carrot released his records on the, the DJM label as well, who subsequently went on to become a millionaire by um, being behind the production company of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. That's what Jasper Carrot does these days. Well, he was a better, better production company manager than he was comedian, as I remember. But uh... I went to see Jasper Carrot live a few years ago in Dublin. In, uh, it was about 2018. And I thought, OK, I'm going to see Jasper Carrot live. And um, it was bizarre. He was, it was, I mean, it wasn't that he wasn't funny, but he was kind of just telling stories off the top of his head and being quite charming about it. And then towards the end, he decided he would tell a great story about the royal family and how friendly he was with them. And, you know, that's, that, for some reason, the Dublin crowd were like, yeah, we don't, we don't really care about this one, Jasper. And uh, so the show kind of ended on a bit of a lull, but it was very strange. Anyway, that's, that's enough Jasper Carrot chat. Um, but yeah, back to pantomime everywhere it's Christmas. Um, yeah, they're in this tiny studio. Lord knows why they wouldn't just use Abbey Road uh, for, for the purposes of it. But yeah, and it, it, it's scripted by Paul. It is scripted by Paul. I suppose there's a narrative of sorts. It's very strange. But yeah, he scripts it. And this is something I only found out uh, when I was researching this, is that I knew that he'd done the cover but he said, I drew the cover myself. There's a sort of funny pantomime horse in the design, if you look closely. But if you look at the cover, and we'll put this up on uh, uh, on X and on Facebook, <laughs> you can sort of see, you can no, sort was, of see. I, I was squinting at it last night, like a uh, like a, one of those kind of magic eye pictures. And I'm like, oh yeah, there is a horse shape there. The, the little yeah. bubbles are the legs and the, the P and the T are kind of at the, the bottom of the head. You can see kind of its ear pointing up at the top. I... I I do get it. And once again, if, if if you are outside the UK or Ireland, the, the notion of what a pantomime horse is might not necessarily be <laughs> readily apparent. So I do feel we have to point out that a pantomime horse is a character in most pantomimes where two people dress up as the front and rear end of a horse and then sort of gallop around, uh, you know, as part of the show. My memory is that US audiences would have been exposed to this on... Um, uh, the Late Late Show with uh, Craig Ferguson, who had a pantomime horse for many years running around in the background. Um, but yes, that's a pantomime horse. Um, yeah, it does look like a pantomime horse. I'm squinting at it now. But yeah, you'd have to be maybe a little bit um, a little bit chemically altered to fully see it. So it is Paul's baby. So what is the logic of the story or is there a logic to the story? Well, there are 10 parts to, to this story. And it, it's all sort of recorded. Everybody sings on it. Paul plays the piano. It then goes back to George Martin, who chops it up. So it lasts for six minutes, and it includes various sketches, including Podgy the Bear and Jasper, which is <laughs> probably my favourite, favourite thing. There's a title tune, Everywhere It's Christmas, which is a very kind yep. of music hall vaudevillian style. And Ringo talks about this. He said, we worked it out between us. Paul did most of the work on it. He thought up the pantomime 
title and the two song things. And we're firmly back in Goon's territory here, I think. And of course, George Martin, his his background is comedy records with Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, the Goons, etc., etc. Ken Womack in his book, Maximum Volume, The Life of Producer George Martin says, Paul McCartney once remarked that everybody from Liverpool is a comedian. This was certainly true of the Beatles, whose wit featured in many of their releases. In many ways, their shared love of comedy and witticism brought George and the band closer together. And this is probably the prime example of that. So should we, we just briefly go through the running order of what happens? Yeah. It, follow the plot? It opens with the theme song, Everywhere It's Christmas. Everywhere it's song, London, Paris, Rome, New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong, blah, blah, blah. Everywhere it's Christmas at the end of every year. So that's their, the, 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 the kind of the overarching theme. And then it opens in Corsica. Where a bearded man in glasses conducts a small choir. And there is a sort of chant, Oroenia, Oroenia, that, that, that they chant. And then we go to the Swiss Alps, where a pair of elderly Scotsmen munch on a rare cheese. And then to the long, dark corridor of Felpen Mansion, home of the Germanic Count Balder. Even these these names are all straight out of the goons. Yes, it's very very goons, and uh, yeah. The, the, so that it then kind of proceeds through this kind of evocative setup into the story of Podgy the Bear and Jasper, which, as you say, is probably the the best one. Where um, you know uh, they have they've no more matches left, and they have to go buy some, uh, and then they need to buy candles. So you know uh, there's no paper to write on Podgy. No need to worry, Jasper. You just keep saying to yourself matches and I'll keep saying candles until we reach the shop. Then we won't need to write it down. Who'll remember the buns, Podgy? We both will, Jasper. And then we'll just repeat the chant. Matches. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. Etc, etc. <laughs> You're getting sleepy. What's not to love? <laughs> Um, uh, uh, and then where we, we kind of end, we, we kind of move on to getting to the, the banjo song that makes its first appearance. And so the, the title is Please Don't Bring Your Banjo Back. And the lyrics are Please Don't Bring Your Banjo Back. I don't know where it's been. I wasn't hardly gone a day when it became the scene. Banjos, banjos all the time. I can't forget that tune. And if I ever see another banjo, I'm going out to buy a big balloon. That's the hit single that never was. Well, you know, between the two kind of songs and the chants and everything else, there is, you know, as I said, this is a hidden history. You do have these little hidden beetle nuggets of songs, you know, like in a year or two, we'll be hanging on to nuggets like, you know, Can You Take Me Back on the White Album? You know, these little kind of wild honey pie moments. But these little fragmentary kind of melodic moments all start on, on these types of, uh, of records. And uh, it's all very evocative. It is, and I think it's very funny that Rolling Stone gave it quite a serious review in 2017. So it said, though brief, the songs are evocative and in some cases quite memorable. Oroenia, ostensibly sung by a Corsican choir, is a strangely beautiful pop hymnal that wouldn't have sounded out of place on a Smile-era Beach Boys album. And the vaudevillian wink of please don't bring your banjo back, I don't know where it's been, is as funny as it is bawdy. And I think... Hilariously funny that uh, Rolling Stone are treating it <laughs> as, a, as a straightforward review. Um, and also Brian is present at the recording, which is nice as well. Yes, that is a nice thing that he's there. It's a shame that they didn't get Brian to uh, you know, play the part of Podgy or Jasper. No, but uh, we do have a special guest star in Mal Evans. Mal appears on the record. Mal does appear on the record, absolutely. 
uh, which is which is pretty wild. Um, so the 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 kind of the single it's it's the first double sided single. It's over six minutes long, and it uh, finishes again with "Everywhere It's Christmas," the the theme song. And because they're working to a very tight schedule, um, you know, they they recorded on the twenty fifth of November. George Martin goes away, puts it all together, gets mixed on the second of December by Jeff Emmerich and Tiny Barrow, and it gets released on the sixteenth of December sixty six, and it comes in its usual kind of fan club newsletter, which is, uh, um, you know, written by uh, good old Frida and Anne Collingham. Uh, so it, it has an update. And I think the thing we need to remember is that the Beatles are, for the first time, will not have a new release out for Christmas 67. So, you know, yes. the previous three Christmases we've had with the Beatles, Beatles for Sale, Rubber Soul, you know, December 66, there's no new Beatle product in the shop. There hasn't been any new Beatles material since August. And this is the new Beatles single that, uh, you know, that people have to look at to see, well, what are they up to? Are they still together? Are they still doing stuff? And um, yeah, the, the, the kind of the fan club letter covers all of that and tells people what's been going on in the recording studio and even has the lyrics to please don't bring your banjo back and everywhere it's Christmas. Uh, and so people are waiting for this to pop into their letterbox to see what the Fab Four are up to. Absolutely. And you think if, if you sold in inverted commas, 20 or 30,000 copies of a single today, it would be number one. Yeah. The first Christmas record had the uh, band club message printed on the sleeve, but all the subsequent ones come with this sort of folded newsletter. And as you say, it's a sort of message to say, this is what they're doing. This is how it was recorded. Um, You know, it was done just after Paul came back from Kenya, wishing everybody a happy Christmas and a successful 67. This is this is the single that never was. Um, yeah. How long before how long before we get the two song all the songs extracted and uh, <laughs> put together? Oh man, we really need Peter Jackson on speed dial. Uh, the thing I liked about their their fan club note was was two things. They talked about you know Brian was in the control room and there was a closed circuit television system so that people in the control room could see what was happening at the studio at the other end of the corridor, which sounds very very high tech. And uh, you know the other thing that they they said they're quite clear in the fan club newsletter to say unlike previous productions, this year's disc doesn't include actual Christmas greetings from the Beatles. Instead, the boys devised this pantomime idea. And it's longer than any of the three earlier fan club records. So they're, you know, they're telegraphing it in an appropriate manner. It is reported in the music press. So, for example, it says Beatles. uh, This is in the Disc and Music Echo. So this would be uh, Tiny Barrow uh, doing this. Um, And it says into about 60,000 letterboxes this week slips a new Beatles single. And then it talks about songs everywhere. It's Christmas. Please don't bring your banjo back it would make you join the fan club mm. to hear what is being touted as a new single. And again, it's all treated very seriously. Chris Hutchins writes, the Beatles revived goon humour once again. Instead of the usual Yuletide greeting, they devised a pantomime as a seasonal offer. This is definitely a record, I think. The coverage is such that it would make you want to join um, the fan club just to get these 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 new songs. Yeah, if you look at these press reports at the time, again, you know, there's a Beatle blackout in terms of new material, but all of a sudden you have articles headlined, you know, the Beatles, the best single money can't buy, and um, the Beatles goon it up again article, that Chris Hutchins article, you know, has a picture of Paul's 
cover and it has the the kind of the, the front and back cover of the single and it even has the dialogue of uh, matches and candles matches and candles uh, all there so you know it, for people who are hungry and, and you know the only thing that is coming into the shops from the Beatles is uh, a collection of Beatles oldies is, is coming yeah. out um, but uh, yeah th- th- this seems very um, exciting but again it doesn't really even though it's a new type of Christmas record it doesn't really give anything away that you know the the music they're recording is uh, Strawberry Fields Forever in, in between all of this No there's no hint of, of, of what's coming in Sgt Pepper or the Strawberry Fields Penny Lane single um, I suppose if anything it is a throwback to radio comedy shows of yes. the late 50s early 60s but done in a very surrealistic way way and I suppose the only hint of what might be to come is the fact that they're using studio production techniques and it's not just a straight to microphone this is John speaking with his voice have a lovely Christmas Yeah, if you wanted to get totally highfalutin about these kind of things uh, certainly throughout the Flower Power 67 era, there's very much this regression into childhood motif that comes up where people are looking back, whether it's kind of the Victoriana of the clothes or the, these kind of childhood kind of memories, which you see with Sid Barrett's work as well. So you could think, well, actually, this is a little bit of a, a harbinger of that because they're kind of looking back to, you know, the radio shows of their youth, to playfulness, to, you know, just being silly and stupid. Um, but it kind of has a has a context to it. But maybe I'm maybe I'm over Jan Wennering this type of thing. No, I think that's a good, I think that is a good point uh, that they, they have returned to the things they were listening to uh, as teenagers. And yeah, it does sort of prefigure that 1967-68 weird childhood uh, nostalgia. So this is, this, is, this is, I suppose, nostalgia for them is, is their teenage years. And it's like uh, what they'll start in 67 with, you know my name, look up the number. You know, that, you mm. can see that song being chopped up uh, and, and slotting in here uh, as one of the songs. Yeah, I guess You Know My Name, Look Up The Number is the best example we have of that kind of Christmas record vibe coming into an official uh, release. You know, that it's, it's this, you can see it's the same guys. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I do think You Know My Name, Look Up The Number is one of my favourite things that they've done because it sort of does show... The fact that they can still connect with each other, even through the sort of, you know, uh, the business troubles that were they were buffeting them in 1969. And I suppose there is something very sweet about these people who are absolutely the biggest pop stars in the world. They're pushing back the boundaries with Strawberry Fields the day before, and then they just nip into a studio and become teenagers again uh, I, I, in the I midst think- of all that. Yeah, I think when you get into the 70s, you kind of feel that, uh, you know, when when you kind of look at this, you know, the, these different versions of the Beatles that are happily coexisting at the same time, you know, the the deep and profound and the silly and the, the goofy, you can kind of see when Paul is, is, is doing his thing in the 70s, people are much less forgiving about the silly and the goofy side of things. You know, if he's saying, you know, I'm going to do a Bond theme and I'm going to do Bruce McMouse and nobody can stop me. I I, I think it's the same kind of mind at work there. Whereas when he's in the Beatles and he's like, yeah, I've written a pantomime with silly songs. They're like, yeah, let's do it. That uh, the Beatles, it's incredible how they kind of got away with being able to do that. Whereas by the time we get to the 70s, 
you know, John and George are being very serious and Paul still wants to play a little bit. Um, and that kind of goes out of fashion in a way. That's a good point. I suppose by 1970, rock was taking itself extremely seriously. You mean you would like to hear Led Zeppelin's Christmas record? <laughs> <laughs> yes. From 1970 or 1971. <laughs> I was trying to think as you were saying that, you know, who, you know, would the Stones do this? Would the Who do this? But then I suppose the Who sort of do that on the Who sellout, where they put little skits and, and, and ads and things uh, in between. So the Who have that comic side to what they do as well, as, as, as well as being incredibly pretentious at times. But once, once, well, yeah. you know, once Who's Next rolls around, they're not, they're not going back there. They're not, they're not going to do that again. But I suppose the Who record is the one that I would think of as being comparable. Yeah, I suppose so. And, and a quick one while he's away. But I, I have just read a book, uh, another book about the Who. I've read the the, the authorised biography of John Entwistle, um, which is called The Ox, which I would recommend. I'd put it on the long finger because I didn't want to start hating John Entwistle. Um, but I've now read a Keith book, a Pete book, a Roger book and a John book. And what you kind of realise from a group like the Who in particular, is how did they get anything done because they really hated each other's company all the time, forever, yeah. uh, which is very unlike the Beatles. The Beatles kind of enjoyed being together up until up until they didn't. And as soon as they didn't really enjoy being together, they knocked it on the head, which is kind yeah. of quite remarkable. Whereas the, the Who, from the get-go, were never all, they were never a four-headed monster. That's just a side point. It's, it's kind of curious. Um, that had the who managed to get anything done. Can I just ask, whenever you say you recommend this book, are you recommending it in the same way that you recommended the Phil Collins autobiography? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I, I, I think the John Entwistle book is good. He's a very strange man. Um, I think he, uh, he, he, he couldn't control himself for, you know, he seems to have an awful lot of compulsive disorders going on, you know, in terms of how he would spend money and acquire things and do everything to excess. Um, but it is a, it is an interesting, it is an interesting read. And because it's, it's based on a, you know, some of the papers from an official autobiography he was trying to write in the nineties, it kind of dips into his own voice from time to time. And, you know, I, I, I kind of feel sorry for him a little bit. Um, but you know, he seemed to live the life he wanted. So maybe I shouldn't feel sorry for him. Um, it's, it's a tough read at times, but I would recommend Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll add that to my Christmas list. I'll add that to my Christmas list. But I think it is a good point. They enjoyed each other's company. Yeah. And they are, the point you made, you know, Paul has been off in Kenya. George has been in India. Uh, John and Ringo have been in Spain. This is, a re- this is the second recording session in six months. You know, uh, so they come back, they do a pass at Strawberry Fields, and then they go in and do this. And it's maybe a nice way for them to reconnect after that time apart. We should probably give a nod to the final three Christmas records because this 66 one is right in the middle. It's number four of seven. Um, you know, the Christmas time is here again in 1967 is possibly the best well known because it has a fantastic actual song attached to it, which is the theme tune Christmas time is here again, which is lost on the B side of Free as a Bird. If you want to, that's the only place you can get the full Christmas time is here again single. But that is actually a Beatles song that could exist as its own standalone song. It's it's a brilliant bit of 67 pop psychedelia. And it does exist uh, as a standalone song on Ringo's Christmas album. He does a recording hey, of it. Yes, it does. And I have to say, I, I really recommend that album. 
That is such a good song. And there's a song on it called <laughs> Christmas Dance, which is fantastic uh, Christmas song. You know, I, I, it, I, my heart sank when I heard that Ringo was doing a Christmas album. I just thought this is going to be terrible. And there are some terrible songs on it. But half of it is absolutely uh, fantastic, including a sort of, well, uh, people should go and listen to it, but it's a kind of uh, Harry Nilsson style punning song on it. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I recommend it. I recommend it. Um, but yeah, Christmas Time is Here Again also has the kind of um, the same uh, bit of sketch work that they had in the 66 one where John Lennon. Uh, recites when Christmas time is over, when the beastie bug run button to the heather and little in and be strattened oot my tether to your arms once back again, och away you bonnie. It's nice to think that in 1967 for Christmas they were doing a single, a TV special, a double EP and also a fan club record. They were giving it their all still at the end of 67. Value for money. Um, but the last two Christmas records are very different. These are 68 and 69 and these are not recorded together and in its notion that the, the Christmas records are a parallel history of what happens with the Beatles, them not recording the Christmas 68 and Christmas 69 records together is emblematic of that. Yes, absolutely. So by 68, they're recording things separately and, and sort of slotting it together. And if you look at the liner notes, it says, recorded in November 1968 at the lush London homes of Beatle John and Beatle Paul and in the back of Beatle Ringo's diesel-powered removal van somewhere in Surrey. The voice of Beatle George is heard because, yours faithfully, the GPD did something right and joined up 6,000 miles of telephone links at an appropriate moment. Additional material was recorded earlier in the elegant Esher home of Beatle George during the rehearsal sessions for the Beatles LP album set. So they're making no bones about the fact that this is all recorded uh, separately. So we get a little acoustic number from uh, Paul. John recites Jock and Yono. And once upon a pool table, um, but the highlight is not from a beetle. The highlight is from Tiny Tim, who shows up. Well, now singing know about that. singing nowhere man, <laughs> nowhere man. Is that not your, not your? That's the highlight of your unpacking your Christmas decorations and Beatles box set to hear Tiny Tim singing nowhere man. <laughs> if you want a depressing book recommendation, read Tiny Tim's biography. That is a hard read. Um, uh, yeah, 68 and 69's discs are put together by Morris Cole, a.k.a. Kenny Everett. Um, the Christmas 69 one exists in that realm that we call Schrodinger's Beatles, where even though the Beatles have supposedly split up, they have still decided to put together a Christmas record and send it to all the fans in December 1969, which, um, you know, features all four Beatles on a record in December 69. Yeah, so, you know, Paul does quite well. He's committed. John has a chat with Yoko. George, I think, gets one line. And Ringo just says, uh, hey, Kenny, could you plug Magic Christian, which is the movie. And Kenny (laughs) Kenny Everett manages to turn that into a little kind of speeded up uh, jingle. So as you say, it absolutely reflects the fact that they are apart they're not, they're not even prepared to get in a studio uh, together to do this. 
Yeah, but there is Beatle business to be done, which is curious. However, by December 1970, there isn't a Beatles no. Christmas record anymore because there isn't a Beatles. So they just assembled them all together and uh, put them uh, out as a, a compilation LP called uh, From Then to You. And you could argue that this is perhaps something that should have been maybe made more official if people wanted to hear these things. But 1970 is also, you know, we're in full tilt, bootleg, boom uh, time. And so this kind of Christmas collection gets essentially circulated as a, uh, as a as a bootleg. Yeah, so it becomes one of the most widely available uh, bootlegs and it makes it very difficult to determine, you know, it's difficult to tell the bootleg from the original. So the original uh, LP version goes for serious money, um, but most of the ones that I've ever seen, I'm pretty certain, have been bootleg copies. Um, these were never available outside the UK. So the, the, the seven messages in America put out in, uh, it really came out in the spring of 1971. That's the first time uh, these things had been available in the US until 2017 when we got our box set. And I think the box set is nice. Should it be more widely available? Should you be able to pick it up whenever you want? Yeah, there's arguments for that. I, I think there is an argument for not releasing it as a general release because I don't think a lot of people would understand. I no. think they would think it would be a, an album of Christmas classics and it's it's not and that would annoy people. But it's out there if you want it and the, the box set from 2017 is a nice thing. However, it's going for about 250 quid these days, which is about twice what most people paid for it originally. But it's a nice, um, you know, box with uh, seven coloured vinyl records in reproduction sleeves and, uh, you know, a covering book uh, to tell us all what we need. And it's got the nice uh, original Beatles logo. It doesn't have the Drop T logo. It has the Curly B with Antennae logo, which is nice to see on an official Beatles release. I think I must uh, now go and play it for the first time. <laughs> you should go and treat yourself. I mean, these these discs, if you do want to buy them in 2023, do have a, a value. The 63 to 65 discs are going for about 30 quid. But the one we're talking about today, the 17th song of 66, 150 quid. It's pretty valuable. Um, 67 goes for about 50 quid. 68 goes for about 100 quid. And 69 uh, goes for 150. And the 1970 record goes for 350 pounds. Um, so people can convert that into their own local currency. But that is, uh, you know, if you have a full set, you'd, you'd make a, a good bit of money. You'd make a tidy sum. I have the first three that I've picked up for sort of 20 quid each, and I would dearly love to get the rest, but I couldn't possibly justify spending, you know, 150, 200 quid. If I win the lottery, that's what I'll, I'll, I'll go and... Uh, <laughs> I, I'll think, go I, think, I think you could justify it, you know, that, that set of completion, that... that that uh, John Entwistle gene that you have to buy one of everything. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that, that, o- uh, that OCD, I need the set. I need the set. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is the 17th song of 1966. So the 17th of the 16 songs uh, that came out to about 60,000 UK fans for whom it dropped into their letterbox uh, uh, in order to give a, an indication of what the Beatles were up to when it seemed like they'd been quiet for a relatively a short time in 2023 eyes of four months. Oh my God, what could the Beatles have? Are they finished? But they're not finished. This was an indication that they were back in the studio, that they were still funny, they were still entertaining. And uh, yeah, I think everybody should go away and dig out their Christmas records box set or see which bits and pieces you can find on YouTube. They're not all on YouTube. It's a bit tricky. I think Apple kind of clamped down a few years ago on them circulating circulating them on YouTube. But they they are always a a fun listen at this time of year. Uh, So yeah, I think you should break out your your box, Stephen. 
I, I will do that as soon as we finish recording this. I'm going to spend the day in front of a <laughs> crackling log fire, roasting chestnuts and listening to uh, the Beatles singles. <laughs> You heard it here first. Um, but what do you think, everybody? Uh, the 17th song of 1966. We want to thank all our ACAST Plus supporters. Um, you know, we have to leave uh, 2023 on a, a, a nice Christmassy note. Uh, and obviously we're available in all the usual places, www.nothingisrealpod.com, X, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group. Uh, give us a nudge and tell us what you think about all the Christmas records. But for now, my name is Jasper. And my name is Podgy the Bear. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. Candles. Matches. I think we can fade out on that. That's enough to drive people crazy. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.